Welcome to another episode of the S Podcasts. Seems to be coming a um, bit of a pattern here. I have Paul Paul Brown with me and uh, Roger Armstrong. And yet again, we're talking about another former Chelsea manager joining Everton. Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You? Yep, very good, thank you. Roger, you? Yes, I'm much happier about this one that we've appointed than the previous one we appointed. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm not talking about Carlo. So it's like, well, good, bad, good. Yeah, um, slightly fanciful, utterly disastrous, and finally we might have got the right man. So nothing like consistency. Interestingly, the um, the Southampton CEO was on Radio 5 last night. I don't know if either of you heard it. Um, but he was talking about long-term sort of strategic thinking and having a consistency in terms of uh, the people that he brought into the organisation. Um, and the contrast is... Uh, some, somewhat different, obviously, um, with Everton. Paul, you are the um, former Chelsea manager, subject matter expert. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, when, when you first heard that uh, we were considering Frank Lampard, what, what, what was your initial thoughts? And um, maybe you can sort of, maybe, well, I can hand over the microphone to you. Um, I thought, good manager, wrong time because I had reservations that he um, is not the kind of guy you want mid-season when you're struggling to fight a relegation battle. I think um, Frank Lampard has a big future as a manager. I think he's done some very promising things, both at Derby and Chelsea, but he does play a kind of quite risky style of football if you're in that situation. Um, with the, the squad that Everton had, they probably needed a, a kind of caretaker guy just to get them through this season and then make an appointment like Lampard. So they've done something quite... Um, they've rolled the dice, basically. And I think you'll see Lampard win a lot of games. I think you'll see him lose a lot of games. I, I can't see him being the sort of manager who will grind out many draws, but it will certainly make it more fun to watch. Um the Newcastle game was a bit of a disaster, but I think that was just really the players getting used to a new style of football and um, new sets of movement, new, new stuff on the training ground. It looked like they weren't quite really up to speed with it. Um, and I think what Lampard does will be much easier to achieve at Goodison than it will be away anyway. So for the next few weeks, I think it could be a, a bumpy ride and a little bit up and down. But certainly against Leeds, that, that was a great performance. And you could really see what, what Lampard wanted. Tempo, pressing high, everyone committed, um, really went after Leeds, got the crowd going. I think that's exactly what they needed, really, in, in that game. So pr- promising signs. Um, at Chelsea, there, there were some issues, not all um, of his own doing. Um, towards the end, it did get very slow and predictable and um, there'd been a lot of problems in the dressing room. He'd frozen out some quite important figures. He'd he'd fallen out with both Alonso and Rudiger. They're both causing trouble behind the scenes and it wasn't a particularly happy camp. But I think the main reason it went wrong for him at Chelsea was after a great first year when he got to play all the kids, the pressure suddenly completely changed when the club did all that spending and brought in a lot of players that Lampard didn't necessarily really push for himself. I think the club bought players rather than Lampard buying them and fitting them into his scheme was quite difficult. So I felt a bit sorry for him in, in a way. Um, and, and the things that went wrong at Chelsea weren't entirely his fault. But when things 
began to turn, he certainly couldn't find a way of getting them out of it. And I think even there were a lot of complaints from Chelsea players that his instructions weren't clear and that he wasn't being um, in their faces enough, really, in, in training. So um, hit, hit and miss, maybe. But I think over the long term, if he, if he does the job, keeps them safe, um, and is allowed to, to build the club, I think he'll be a big success at Everton over the longer term. Can I jump in, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so a, a couple of things that arise from that. Uh, the fact that he, he, he wasn't necessarily involved in uh, player recruitment at Chelsea, it obviously probably is not a great surprise. It's likely that he won't necessarily be involved in player recruitment at Everton. Mm. Uh, yeah. partic- particularly if we do bring in a director of football, but also given you know how how strong Mashiri uh, how strong Mashiri's involvement is, and how indeed the board, uh, in particular the chairman, likes to be involved in player recruitment, so he actually might face that situation uh, a second time for a second time. And the second point, just from your initial comments, is is interesting in terms of him being uh, a coach. I mean, obviously, one sees him quite off, quite frequently in in a tracksuit, and he gives the impression of being somebody that's active on 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 the training ground. Are you suggesting that perhaps that's not necessarily the case? Um, yes and no. Most of the day to day coaching at Chelsea was done by Jody Morris, um, mm-hmm. who obviously hasn't joined him um, at Everton. He is someone who's always on the training ground, and he is someone who would who would stop a training session, call someone aside, have a quiet word with them. But I don't think he's someone who who runs training all the time, really. And I think when it came to match, what, what I meant really was when it comes to match situations, players went on the pitch feeling that they hadn't been given a clear um, a clear set of instructions about their role in the game. And sometimes you could see it. Sometimes you could see there were there were moments when Chelsea didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing in a match. And that's maybe more about how he gets his message across in team meetings and video analysis and the rest of it than the actual training. But I don't think he's, he's that hands-on a, a coach, really. He, he does seem to, be, to want to be more of a manager. So I think a lot of the training will probably be done by others. Um, he'll be there and he'll get involved. But I don't think he's someone who runs every session, bang, 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 like, like some managers do. Um, what you said about recruitment is, is right. He probably will face the same problem. But being positive about it for a minute, say they appoint Steve Hitchin from, from Spurs, I think that would be the, the ideal appointment, the ideal man to, to work with him. I think they would see eye to eye and Hitchin is someone who's always kind of delivered for the managers who've been at his clubs. So if they appointed, for argument's sake, if they appointed Hitchin and he's allowed to do his job in a way that Brands wasn't, which is obviously is a big, there'd be a big question mark over that. But if he is, I think he's someone who could deliver for, for Frank Lampard. I don't think there would be any tension there. They look like natural bedfellows to me. Hitchin got on with not just Pochettino, but Mourinho as well, who are you know worlds apart in terms of personality and character. And both of them thought he delivered what they wanted. So if they could make that appointment, I think that would be a big plus for the club. Well, can I just ask you about the, uh, the other staff that um, Frank's brought with him and how surprised you were uh, and give us some insight into what you know about. And obviously, Clement, you know quite well because he's worked, you know, with, with, with Carlo, who, who you know well. But you know, getting Ashley Cole uh, and 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 the other, uh, you know, the, the assistant manager from Chelsea who came with Frank, 
Um, what, what can you tell us about them and how surprised were you that they were willing to up sticks and move to the northwest? It doesn't really surprise me that people have gone with, with Frank because he's, he's popular, people like him. Um, and I think the way things are going at Chelsea, there are probably a couple of faces there who were looking for a new challenge anyway. Um, right. Ashley Cole is a, is a bit of an unknown. We don't really know what sort of coach he'll be. He certainly adds a bit of stardust and, and glamour. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for people to inspire players, you've now got one of the greatest England midfielders ever to play the game, one of the greatest left-backs ever to play the game. And, you know, we all know about Duncan Ferguson's um, influence and, and ability to inspire players. So in terms of that, I think that's that those are all positives. Um, it, Do you think Baines and Ferguson will hang around beyond the end of this season? Because, you know, I mean, Ashley Cole and Leighton Baines, it's a bit like, you know, the, the, they're kind of the same, aren't they? Well, as I say, it's difficult to know what, what Ashley Cole's um, role as a coach is and, and, and what he what, how he sees himself and what he wants to do. So it may be a bit simplistic to, to say that. We'll have to wait and see. Um, mm. it, it could be that, you know, Duncan having been there for so many managers, now been interviewed for the job, um, not getting it and, and not appearing to get it anytime soon, might think that going somewhere else and, and making his own way might be the right the right thing for him. But I don't think Frank's someone who, who would necessarily want him gone very, very quickly. I think um, from from what I understand, he, he's he's wanted someone like that there anyway, who already knows the club, knows the players and, and who can feed him information quite well. You know, Duncan's very popular, you have to remember, with um, a lot of the younger players who, you know, you, you could see when he was in, in his first caretaker spell, the, the reaction to, you know, how, how things were going. He's very popular there and I think, you know, Frank Frank realizes that it, it it wouldn't be a wise move to ease him out. I don't think. Yeah. I think they've made I think they've made good appointments more than just getting Frank Lampard. I think they've made good appointments there, and that's that's going to be very important for them going forward. Just just a question on Frank, Paul. It just occurred to me while whilst you were talking. Is is Frank a detail man, or is he a sort of much more a sort of step back, um, big picture man? No, he, he is. He, surprisingly, you you would think maybe from because he's an ex player and he's just stepped into the game that he's not someone who has a, a massive tactical knowledge and you know isn't a deep thinker about the game. But I think he is actually. Um, he's shown at his at both his clubs so far that he can be adaptable. He's used different systems. He knows how to change tactics in a game and um, that hasn't maybe always worked but it's not always going to work for any manager I, I think he does have an understanding of, of the game he played at the highest level and he's played for a lot of the greatest managers around so I think he's certainly picked up certain things he's not someone who's, who's meticulous in the way that Benitez is um, he's not someone who has the massive experience the way that Carlo had um, I think he's got his own style of management and I think it could be a success if, you know, if, if the stars align for him at Everton. There's lots of different elements, really, to, to Lampard. Some people love him. Some people don't like him very much. He, he, he's had that his whole career. He started at West Ham and the fans thought he was in the team just because of nepotism and the, the family connection. So he's always had to fight against people putting him down. And, you know, even when he was 
um, achieving great things at Chelsea. He had people comparing him to Gerrard constantly, and, and a lot of people still think Gerrard was the better player. I don't, but <laughs> I'm, I might I might be in the minority there. Um, Not on this but, podcast. I think you'll be in the unanimous. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, so I think he's always had to fight against adversity, and there'll be people questioning him now. Um, but I think I think he's got a future as a manager, and I think it's going to be an interesting. <clears throat> An interesting ride for him at Everton. The one, the one story I remember really that stands out about him that's probably quite instructive about his character, though, is you probably you probably know about it already. Is the radio phoning? <laughs> his, um, his his sister was listening to LBC years ago, and James O'Brien was having a right go at Lampard, calling him a scumbag um, because he just split up with his his girlfriend. And there was a story in the paper about how. Lampard's kids were now living with her in a pokey little flat while Lampard had turned the family home into a bachelor pad. All, all completely wrong, but his sister's in, in tears um, listening to it, phones Lampard up, uh, says, oh, I can maybe be saying this about you, you need to do something about this. So Lampard phoned in, phoned into the radio show and spent, you know, 10 minutes slowly and methodically and very calmly destroying James O'Brien on the radio, defending himself, putting him right and explaining the situation and saying, this is, today is the anniversary of my mother's death and how dare you go on the radio and call me a scumbag, <laughs> basically. And I thought, good, good for you, Frank. <laughs> not, not many people would have the balls to do that, but he did. And not many people would have the, the, the wherewithal to go on and say what he did without getting really angry and losing it. I don't think I would have done in the yeah. same situation. <clears throat> so I only mention that because... It's a good, it's a good way of, it's a good example of showing um, the sort of personality. I mean, he's not going to be a shouter. He's not going to be someone who rants and raves and chucks the teacups around in in the dressing room. But he is someone who is capable of being calm under pressure, and that's going to be important, I think. I was interested with what you said about communication because you know one of the things that people would always quote about Frank is that you know he went to Brentwood School, he's privately educated, he got an A in his Latin O level or whatever the hell it was. Um, but I was interested about the communication thing because I think he's a good communicator. I think he's an intelligent guy, and I think that's one of the qualities he'll bring to bear. Nor was he necessarily naturally gifted, so he had to work very hard, a bit like Beckham on his technique, a very good trainer. And therefore, he'll he'll be able to improve players. But yeah. on the communication side, it's interesting that he wasn't communicating that effectively with some of the players, because I think since he's taken over at Everton, the way he's communicated through the media to the fans has been absolutely spot on. He's been honest. He's been direct. I think he, he gets the fans rather than getting the club, which I think are two totally different things, because the fans and the club have been rather disconnected. And I felt that Frank was talking to the fans rather than, you know, talking to his his paymasters. I think, it, you know, that's really, really important to Everton after the times we've had under Mashiri, that the manager connects with the fans as quickly as possible. And I think he's done that through his communication. I, I wondered if you sort of drew the same conclusion, Paul. He's very good at um, building relationship with the fan base. He always has been. Um, didn't have to work very hard at it at Chelsea for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. But Might still struggle at West Ham, I guess. Yeah, okay, maybe that one's a step too far. But <laughs> but you know, he did it at Derby, and yeah. the Everton fans have already been singing his name, which just looks incredibly strange to me the first time I saw that. Um, but he, he's just very good at it. He builds a he builds a rapport, and you can see he's invested. 
you can see he's, he's it, compare the sort of passion he shows on the touchline to, to Carlo's eyebrow. I mean, we're all, we were raving about Carlo's eyebrow and the drinking of tea when they, they just scored that goal, remember? Um, yes. Lampard would have been going berserk and, you know, <laughs> sometimes you need someone with a bit of that passion on the, on the touchline. So that, I think that's, that's a, a good thing to see. In terms of his communication, I would say it's probably about the different kinds of players you have to manage in the modern yeah. game. Um, like Pochettino, he's, he's someone who gets on very well with younger players. It's, it's one of the reasons why he can bring them through and they do well for him because um, if you're more open and willing to, more receptive to ideas and, and listening to someone and, and a coach who, who wants you to work your ass off and, you know, do the sort of things that he did because nobody worked or trained harder than Lampard. He was a model pro, always stayed for extra hours working on his game. It's, it's the reason he, he got to the top. He may not have been the most naturally yeah, absolutely, really, but he, he, he worked harder than anyone at Chelsea and probably anyone at West Ham as well, actually, when he was there. Um, that's the kind of thing that rubs off on young players. I think it's interesting that the people he, he's fallen out with so far in his managerial career are not those kind of players. They're, they're players who probably don't want to hear those things at the stage of the career they're in. It's like the older players who've been there and done it a lot already and already think they're at the top of their game who don't necessarily want to um, suddenly bust a gut 100 miles an hour in training every day or, you know, be told stop doing that, do it like this. You know, sometimes it's easier with younger players to get that message across. And I think that's in, in exactly the same way that Pochettino had success early on at Spurs. Um, Lampard will have success with younger players because they're the ones who listen and learn from and be and more likely to be inspired by someone like that than you know your, your veterans who've been there, seen it all, done it already. Um, and there's a there's a mix of that in the Everton squad, but I do think it's exciting times for some of the younger players there because they'll get chances. And I also think he will push to sign that kind of player for the team as well. I think he'll want people who. He knows we'll listen to him and he knows he can improve. Rather, You're not going to see Everton suddenly trying to sign loads of 30, 32-year-olds under Lampard, basically, in, in a sort of win-now strategy. I think, I think he will want younger players and that is what the club need to do. They need to, they need to start signing people who won't just grow and get better at the club but will also ultimately you know, have a sell-on value and, and turn a profit if at some point they have to leave. You know, So... I think in terms of the squad, you'll see a bit of rebalancing there as well. What about, how how'd you explain Thiago Silva, though, coming to Chelsea? Because um, we were talking last night about potentially, you know, one of the big holes in the Everton squad, um, the size of the Mersey Tunnel, arguably, is at centre-back, because we haven't got any of any consistent quality or who can play anything approaching 30 games a season. Um, and as Piliqueta, champion of the world, is um, his contract's up. He might be available on a free. Um, do you not think Frank might bring somebody like that in, um, like he did with Thiago Silva, to to just shore things up and bring some experience and a, a, and a head he can trust on the pitch? It's interesting that Everton went for Thiago Silva as well, isn't it? Before Absolutely. Chelsea. I think, I'm yeah. not sure he had that many other options, really, before Chelsea suddenly swooped. So how different things could have been if they'd managed to get him? <laughs> um, I think if, if Frank brings anyone from Chelsea, it's more likely to be one of the kids. Um okay. <laughs> partly because people like Azpilicueta probably aren't going to want to spend the last years of their career at Everton. I think someone like that is more likely to head back to the continent for a team 
you know, where they know they're going to get Champions League football straight away. Um, I think wherever, for where Everton are, assuming they stay up, <laughs> you know, and then the, if, if they don't, obviously everything changes, but assuming they stay up, um, I still think it's more likely that he, he tries to bring in, you know, players who maybe aren't playing so much for Chelsea, but look like they've got a big future in the game. Like, I wouldn't be at all surprised if if he, if he tries to get Billy Gilmore here on loan, for instance. That would be a, a kind of an interesting one. Um, but I think players coming to the end of their career at Chelsea, you're very unlikely to see them turn up at Everton. Can I ask you about style of play a little bit? Because obviously Frank, central midfielder, goal-scoring midfielder, box-to-box, dead ball, penalty taker. Um, and one of the things I noticed, obviously less so at Newcastle, but in the two home games that we won, was that we passed the ball quickly through the centre of midfield. We didn't necessarily use the wings that much. Um, no. And when we did get it out wide, players cut inside. So, you know, I think about a player like Anthony Gordon. I think about a player like Damari Gray. Um, where do they fit? You know, is Frank likely to play a 4-3-3, a 4-4-2 with, with wide players or a diamond? And will we, will we see... A lot more because it's really encouraging when the ball gets passed through the centre of midfield quickly. Um, you know, so many teams mess around at the back. I saw Leicester against West Ham on Sunday doing that so much, side to side to side, going nowhere. Um, and for so long, Everton's only sort of attacking option has been careering Seamus Coleman down the right hand side. You know, mm. so, so in terms of style of play, what what, what do you think Frank will um, will will want us to play like? Well, he's played two different systems already, so it shows he's going to he's going to adapt to what he's got, which is probably the right the right decision under the circumstances. Um, yeah, he, he played basically a four four two, which is not um, something he's often done uh, in the Leeds game. But he doesn't really play with wingers, uh, even even in exactly. that game in in the four four two, the, the two wide midfielders played tucked in, and everywhere the ball went. If you watch the game, they really tried to condense that space. So, I mean, the, the issue there is going to be that once teams work out, he's really pressing around the area the ball is, the um, the switch of play to the other side is always going to be on for that team. And it's, it's going to be how Everton respond to that. Um, he likes to, there were times against Leeds when both fullbacks were on the edge of the opposition box. So he obviously wants to make them both. That's quite risky when you're playing a four. The, the risk there yeah. is if, if you get turned, you can get counter-attacked on quickly and, and that might be a problem. It worked because they were all invested and they didn't give Leeds time to breathe. And, you know, it only takes one to be slightly off the press for it all to fall apart. But nobody really was in that game. I thought they were all they were all really good. I think long-term, he'll either play a 3-4-3 or a 4-3-3. Those seem to be the two systems that he, he likes the best. But, but they all involve playing with the wingers tucked in. The width yeah. comes from the full-backs and the wingers play almost as sort of supplementary midfielders. and Almost inside he forwards. Likes, yeah, he, he likes to play them. He likes to have kind of a box of four. I mean, some, some teams play an out-and-out 4-2-2-2, out, two, 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 they call it, um, where the wingers are, are literally tucked in behind the, the forwards. But whatever... Whatever shape you have, he likes to have that box of two out-and-out midfielders and the wingers tucked in just ahead of them. And that could solve the problem of um, Everton constantly getting overrun this season in midfield because um, it, it seemed to me that every time they've done well in a the game, they've had three in there. And, and every time they've been taken apart, 
it's because they've been overrun in, in terms of numbers and they, they don't have the legs to, to chase people around when it's just a two. So if he's going to play a two, I think one of the reasons why it could work is because he plays with those inverted wingers and it becomes like a box of four in, a, in the central area. But he's obviously told them, you know, get it, go forward, make the ball go forward quickly. You know, the first pass has always seems to have been forward. All, all the centre-backs have been told, you know, we're not, we're not playing it around at, at, in, in the back line. Just make it go into the midfield, cut the lines as quickly as possible, which is a positive thing. It's going to be exciting to watch, I think. Um, well, doesn't, uh, doesn't Van der Beek uh, solve that problem in terms of us having been o- overrun previously? Uh, one of the things I, I sort of picked up from, from the Leeds game was that, uh, you know, for the first time in a long time, we had a player who could actually put his foot on the ball, could move the ball quickly if he wanted to, but also could, you know, almost in a sort of, almost like a sort of a deeper Rodriguez sort of style, he could actually move the ball even when he was pressed individually. Yeah, we've def- desperately needed someone good in possession who, who has a, you know, who can, who can keep it and, and play passes sitting in front of the, the back four. The only problem with, with Van der Beek is that he's more of a 10, really. He's yeah. always been a 10 in his career. He's not naturally suited to playing deeper. So there might be times in games when they're under pressure, when he, when he, he, he turns into a bit of an Andre Gomez and, and might be a, more of a liability. But, you know, we haven't seen that yet. So let, let's be positive. He, he had a great game against Leeds and he showed he can do that role. I was a bit sceptical about whether... Allen and, and Van der Beek would, would work together, but they do seem to already have a bit of an understanding. He's clearly much better on the ball and much better in terms of possession, looking after it and getting away from pressure than anyone else in the squad already, Van der Beek. So that's been a, a huge plus. And you will see him, you did see him in that game, popping up in, in, in the box as well, creating stuff at the other end. So, you know, I think he'll, I think he'll bring goals and I think he'll, he'll make he should make the rest of it work because they haven't really had a player this season who who can break the line that quickly like he does and and drift into pockets of space and and always be available for a pass. I think those things are important. It was a good pickup, but I I still would have liked to see someone um, who has a bit more discipline, who is used to playing just that role in front of the back four, who sits and has more of a range of passing, you know, who can play a long one occasionally out out to either wing if you need. Van der Beek is someone who always needs like little one-twos and stuff and, and knits things together well. And, and it's a different, slightly different profile to what I thought Everton were, were crying out for, but Lampard can make it work and he certainly made it work against Leeds. So let's hope it continues like that. I think he's a bit of a young Gareth Barry. Van der Beek. <laughs> well, well, I thought they needed marginally quicker. Yeah, well, I thought they needed a young Gareth Barry, someone with a bit more, someone who literally just sits and, and knows the role, like like a keeps the game ticking over. Um, yeah, absolutely. Short passes rather than you know cross field or yeah. Or, yeah. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure Van der Beek has, has proved that um, he, he can track runners, spot danger quickly, and, and get a footing like Barry did. Barry was brilliant at that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll what what do you think, um, Paul? What What do you think it means for Calvert Lewin, if anything? Um, it's just good to see him back on the field, isn't it? Um, no, but but I mean Lampard. You know, Lampard playing with a you know, a, let's call him an old fashioned number nine. Um, does that suit him? I guess the setup under Rafa pro- probably would have suited 
Calvert-Lewin a bit better because Rafa was all about um, quick counter-attacks, get it to the winger and feed him with as many crosses as possible. He'd identified Calvert-Lewin as the the most important player and, and wanted to hit him as, as, as often as he could. Um, this is a slightly different setup, but yeah. I think I think if they make it work, it's going to make Calvert-Lewin a better player um, mm. because it's going to be more about his movement, um, you know, runs off the shoulder of the last man, how to bring other people into the game. I think that's going to make him a much more rounded player. So Frank had a lot of success with Tammy Abraham and Tammy Abraham's movement was was brilliant. He was already quite good at it. He's got a natural talent for that. Um, but if he has the same success with, with Calvert-Lewin, I think he'll make, I think he'll make Dom a, a, much, a much better player. I just think the, the type of service is going to be slightly different to what he was expecting under Rafa. It's going to be more on the deck, isn't it? Yeah, probably, yeah, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think it, it worked, really, against Leeds. Um, I think Calvert-Lewin, if he, if he wants to go to the top, and I do think he can go right to the top, he could be England's next number nine, um, starting number nine. He's going to need a few more strings to his bow than, than just being the guy, you know, sticking him in from headers and and um, um, scoring goals like that. So I think this could be a positive development for him. Mm. That, that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that would be, in effect, almost like the third change of style or the second change of style. So he's had three separate um, styles. You could argue possibly what, what you're saying now, um, Paul, was the way that... Uh, Kuman approached uh, DCL. Okay, he played him out on the, on the left wing, but he tried to make him a much more complete footballer mm. than just somebody who's who scored go- you know, scored goals in the box. And then the second phase of his career, up to the point where he was injured, was getting the box uh, under under Angelotti and under um, under Benitez and, and just score goals in the box. And now what you're suggesting perhaps is actually almost a reversion back to what he was or what might have been before, but didn't actually quite quite work out for for, for many different reasons. Uh, I, I'm curious as to whether or not that actually that would, only time will tell, obviously, but I'm curious as to whether or not that will work. And in fact, actually, whether or not uh, that's something that DCL wants, because I think if you're a, if you are a number nine and you get uh, a taste for scoring goals, then you want to continue scoring goals. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't think he's. Um, I don't think he's going to struggle to score goals, and I don't think he's going to be asked to suddenly go back to running here, there, and everywhere and, and, and working too hard. Because ultimately, before Carlo, he just worked too hard, didn't he? He was yeah. brilliant at closing people down, but he was never really available where they needed him too much. So great at the press, and but almost overworking. Carlo told him to concentrate on the important things and become someone who can score with one touch in the box. I don't think Frank's going to want to take any of that away. I think Frank will try to build on it, that's all. Um, I, I don't really think under Carlo we just played a sort of long ball, get it wide and, and cross it game either. Um, so w- when he had Hammers in there, he, he was used to the kind of build-up play that I think Frank will try and encourage too. Um, he, he didn't score many goals, sorry. Think, he, didn't, he, he didn't score many goals, did he, when... When, for example, the ball was played in front of him, so you know, like for example, uh, he he never looked comfortable on a you know uh, on a one one against one situation. 
Now, maybe that's something that he can develop mm. in his game, but um, it, just an, an observation, that's all. I think he's, I think he's still learning, but I, I would say ultimately Lampard's Everton are probably going to score a lot of goals. And yeah. you would think that because they do that, you know, some of them are going to come from Calvert-Lewin. It might just be that the, the service to him is going to be a little bit different to what he was expecting under under Rafa's side. That that's all. I, I think I think Frank will win a lot of games and he will lose a few, and he might win some by quite big margins, and he might lose some by quite heavily as well. Um, but I think that he's going to play attacking high tempo football, and I think that's going to create chances, and that chances will be created for Calvert-Lewin. So I, I think he will score goals for Frank. Where does uh, Richarlison's um, fit into all of this? Because if you're, as you're suggesting, um, the wingers are playing in a much more narrow formation, it suddenly starts to look a bit crowded up top. Yeah, I did wonder that. But um, I I think Richarlison is almost the most important player for the press at Everton. He's often the the leader of that. I thought he did some great work against Leeds, closing people down and, and chasing. And... Um, his role in that system, if, if it's if it's three four three, for instance, with two wingers either side of Calvert Lewin, he would be one of those tucked in. And I think he's actually he's actually perfect for that role because that allows him to to press the fullback and the centre back and get involved in midfield quite a lot. And I think that's a that's a really good role for him. He played basically as a, a striker next to Calvert Lewin in, in the Leeds game when they went to a, a four at the back, so he can also do that as well. I don't see it being a problem. Um, whether he hangs around at Everton for long is, is the big question, but I don't think it's going to be any change of system or anything from Frank that, that means he leaves. Really, I think it's going to be financial concerns, or you know, he, he thinks he's he's done his time there himself and, and wants another challenge, a, a bigger a bigger club in the in the Champions League position, maybe. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about his role really, just because it's Frank. Interesting. Roger, Roger, you've got a slightly different view, haven't you? I think on on Richarlison as to as against most Evertonians. Look, I like him as a personality. Um, I, I I think I think both he and DCL are a little bit limiting in terms of um, flexibility that modern teams need. Different goal scorers, different formations, fluidity. Um, in the same way as Tottenham struggle with Harry Kane because they have to play Harry Kane at the top of the pitch. I don't think there's anywhere else you can play DCL. I think he is a number nine. Uh, I think he's an effective number nine. I think he's good in the air, but I think on the ground, he, you know, maybe, maybe he can improve that. I think he needs to get better at, you know, anticipating crosses and accelerating into the six yard box for a number of times. He just misses it by a, you know, a toes uh, width is, is, is um, a little worrying. But I think his presence makes things difficult for Richarlison. However, saying that, Richarlison is not an out-and-out nine. Richarlison could play all the way across the front three. You know, I think Richarlison could slot into the Liverpool team very easily. And he could slot into the Manchester City team very easily. So whilst they occasionally have worked well together, they tend to score goals individually. And um, I think Richarlison is at a key stage of his career and both of them are undoubtedly assets. And we know that we have financial limitations. And if you could sell a pair of them for 150 million, which I think you probably could expect those, that to be their combined market value, it would give Frank an awful lot of money to reinvest and rebuild the squad. 
Um, I'm not saying either of them are bad footballers. They that they, they aren't bad footballers. I, I just I'm just not entirely convinced that um, the two of them together um, make an effective pair, or as individuals. Unless you try and well, you couldn't play three up top with DCL. You probably could with two different players uh, alongside Richarlison. So um, whilst they're both talented and whilst they've both scored goals, I could see a number of scenarios, either personal ambition or the need to sell and generate cash that they would leave in the summer, both of them. That's interesting because, Paul, you, you talked about Steve Hitchin before. Um, I assume from what you said that you're of the view that if he was given cash to spend, um, or cash was made available to him, that he would be very effective with Frank Lampard? Yeah, I, I just think they, they seem like a, a pair that would work well together. Um, they both know the Premier League. Um, Hitchin's had a, had a lot of success before doing that for different managers, so he knows how it's done. Um, not all of his signings have been hits, but they've been players that the manager wanted. That, that's the, the key thing is he, he's delivered for his managers. It's not been a case of the yeah. club saying, oh, he looks good, let's sign him. It doesn't matter if he's 60 million. He's only signed players the manager actually wanted. So he's, he's someone who listens. And I think that's really what, what Everton need in, in the setup. You talk about, you talk about long term, don't you? You know, Paul, you mentioned Southampton and their strategy. And we've got to we've got to expect that Frank's going to beat. And what has he signed? A two and a half year deal. I'd like to think he'd stay a little bit longer than that. And so, whilst I get the theory of oh, you bring in a director of football and he instills a playing philosophy from under twelves all the way through, and he signs players who fit in and whatever your coach, everything's tickety boo. Um, I think we're in a we're in a building stage, and I think we want to support and give Frank every opportunity to stay, not just for three years, but for five years. Therefore, the doff that we get, if we get one, needs to be aligned with him. And as Paul says, provide him with the resources he needs. And I think we have to go all in on that. The, the Lampard style, the Lampard philosophy, his coaches, um, and sign the players that he needs rather than, you know, a doff with a particular penchant for, you know, playing five at the back or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Going back to something that Paul said right at the beginning of, of the podcast, um, Lampard, in a sense, is, is taking a bit of a risk, though, isn't he, in, in that sense, because uh, he's come into a, a club, obviously, that was in, in a difficult situation for, for many obvious reasons, but also a club that is supposedly going through a, a football review at this moment in time. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because <laughs> we don't actually know what the football structure is going to be. Uh, okay, so Frank's come in and he's brought people in with him, three or four people, which is great and everything else, and perhaps we're bringing in a director of football. Um, but Paul uh, Paul Brown, as, as, as we've often talked about, you know, one never knows what's going to happen at Everton because you have this sort of maverick character that sits on the outside who dips in whenever he wants. Yeah, it's been messy, hasn't it? Um, how that resolves itself long-term, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm sure Frank's aware that there's a review going on and I'm sure he'll, he'll want to say his piece. And I'm, usually that would that would happen when they all sit down at, at the end of the season and you'd hope that um, Lampard being who he is would have a, a role to play in, in what the setup looks like going forward. 
Um, I, I do think there's there's no reason why they can't appoint a director of football who can do all those things you, you spoke about, Roger, and still back the manager and, and give him what he wants. But there's clearly not going to be a, a huge budget to play with, whatever happens at Everton in, in the summer. Um, well, unless we sell DCL and Richarlison. Well, I, I think it's it's impossible they sell both. They might sell one, but even then, how much do you how much do you get to spend if, if you sell one? How much, it's difficult to put a value on on either of those players. Really, how much would Everton want for either of them? I, I wonder. Um, because yeah, it's both has, Price and Allison only has five goals this season. How, how do you put a value on him? He's probably the most mm. important player in in the team, but he scored five goals. Yeah, I mean, people were talking about him being an eighty million pound player a couple of years ago. Five goals is not an eighty million pound player, ultimately. So, I think it's about know, suitors, though, isn't it? You know, yeah. I think it's about, and this was the problem with Harry Kane, uh, and and I think DCL may fall into the same trap. Who on earth wants Harry Kane? Who could fit him in? The only club I thought that could take Harry Kane was Chelsea, and they um, they went for Rom, obviously. And so Kane is quite a one-dimensional footballer. I can hear people screaming at their telephones when I say this, but DCL could fall into the same trap. I mean, I think he's a shoe-in to go to Tottenham if Kane leaves. Uh, and I think I could see him fitting into Arteta's Arsenal. Richarlison, mm. I think, would have much wider appeal. I think he could play in Manchester City. I think he could, you know, if Mbappe were to go from PSG to Real Madrid, he could go there equally. He could go to Real Madrid. Um, I think Richarlison has many more options and he has talented, he has, you know, enormous talent. And as the song says, he's Brazilian. That probably adds 20 million to his value anyway. Um, I, I appreciate his goal stats aren't great this season, but as a work ethic and overall contribution and the amount of stats there are in football nowadays, I still think he is a 75, 80 million pound player. And I think a club like PSG or, um, you know, Real Madrid, even, even Barca would pay that for him. Mm, I'm, I'm not convinced. <laughs> we'll we'll see. All right. Um, uh, if, I'm just trying to big him up. If, if they were to get an offer like that, I think they would snap it up, don't, don't you, Everton? I think oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The way they are, they, they would uh, bite your hand off to take that. Whether, yeah. And I'm sure probably Lampard would would, um, would say yes to it as well if he knew he could spend it. So <laughs> we'll see, I guess. I think that's probably the, that would pro- possibly be the least popular move anybody could make at the club. Uh, no matter so one, what. One thing need. I'd like to one, on. one thing I, we should say on Lampard really, um, all the problems he's had. I think Lampard's going to be a success at Everton if he can show he's learned from his mistakes because he has made mistakes in, in management. But I do think he's already showing that he's willing to change. He's not someone who's stubborn, set in his ways and wants to do the same thing over and over again because it's my way or the highway and it has to work. He's been adaptable with systems. Yep. He's shown he's shown by by not taking Jody Morris with him that he wants to be his own man. He's got a very good coaching team around him. And especially at the start of his time at Chelsea, there were times when he was very naive. Um, even in matches, I can remember a couple of games where... Uh, Chelsea would be, scores would be level heading into the last sort of 20 minutes of a game at, at Stamford Bridge and he would chase it too much. He'd make one or sometimes two very attacking substitutions and lose the game. I can remember a Champions League game, I think it was against Valencia and he brought Giroud on for a defender. I think he might have taken Zuma off and literally almost straight afterwards Valencia scored and won the game. Um, yeah, yeah. 
towards the end of his time at Chelsea. I thought he'd started to cut that out a little bit, but it, it, there were still times when he looked a little bit naive. And I think if he's learnt from, from those mistakes, um, he'll be a big success at Everton. I just think he's already showing that he's, he's got the ability to change and learn. What, what, is a, what would make him a success, Paul? I'll tell you what I think, but you go first. Well, the, the, the only success this season is keeping them up. Um, ne- yeah. Next year, if, if he's allowed to, to build and, um, and do what he wants, success is, is, is the next step onto that is getting them back to a position where they're challenging for a European place and, and going as far as they can in cups. And then ultimately, you know, trying to win a trophy and getting them into Europe, surely. But, you know, we could be, could be two years away from, from that kind of, of challenge again. We'll see. Yeah. Success has to be seeing out his contract, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. And then getting an extension. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the other the other point about um, giving the job to, to Lampard is he he's what, what is his long term goal? He's, he's done the Chelsea job. He's not likely to be offered one of the big four six really um, again any anytime soon. So he, he's not. I don't think he's there to use it as a stepping stone to something better. He's done. He's done the the big job that he wants. The, the only job ultimately that he might want to do that that you could say um, he might be on the radar for one day would be the England job. But obviously that yeah. be that's probably years away. So I think he, you know, he's he's been interviewed for other clubs. He's been in for for clubs um, where you would have thought at the time they weren't even as an attractive a, a job as as the Everton one. He was. He was you know, in for the Norwich job and the Palace job, for instance, um, and, the, and didn't get either of those for various reasons. Um, but I think he's at Everton to make Everton a success and he wants to be a success with Everton. I don't think you're going to see, it's not like Carlo, oh, you know, that they've thrown me a lot of money, I'll see what I can do for a while and see what else turns up. <laughs> no, know? no, no, exactly. I mean, I thought... Not somebody's exactly. going to be jumping ship anywhere is what I'm trying to trying to say. No, precisely. And and that was one of the things I thought about at the time when we were looking for it. I was surprised that, I mean, I was surprised he was even interested in Norwich because, you know, I don't think Pep Guardiola could keep them up. Um, but it, it struck me, as you say, obviously, early on, he got that taste of Champions League football and managing his, his um, not, not necessarily his boyhood club, but the club that he spent most of his career at. Um, and, and it ended a little bit disappointingly. So where does he go from there? And to me, I thought there were only two other clubs in the Premier League that could match his ambition, where he could take them and 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 uh, and, and make a difference and win a trophy and maybe get them into Europe and maybe get them into the Champions League. And, and Everton was one of them, and the other one was West Ham. And he's never going to go to West Ham because they hate him because yeah. he left them. And and you could say maybe, maybe, maybe he might be considered for Tottenham, but really, again, Chelsea, Tottenham, that doesn't go. And so possibly. You know, if Brenda had been messing things up a little earlier, maybe he could be a fit for, for Leicester. But I, I just think Everton was the absolute perfect fit because, as you say, short of the England job, where does he go from here? I mean, mm. will Chelsea come back looking for him if Everton are in the top four next year and Tuchel is um, messing things up at the bridge? I don't think they'd go back to Frank. I mean, they did for Mourinho twice, but I don't think so. And I don't think he'd go back there. Um, I, I think we've got him and if we can make it work, you know, he's 43 years old. That's all he is. You know? The other the other thing that he, he had to learn, really, I mean, I mentioned it before with, with the players that he fell out with at Chelsea. He, he ended up hurting his own team by freezing yeah. out 
so completely the way he did. I mean, it, it was counterproductive to to just you know have have the row and then say that's it. You're not playing for me again. Forget it. You know, sometimes you've got to be a, a bigger man and, and back down and see what the you know um, the overall picture is and what's what's best for your team. There, there are ways of smoothing things over with a player you've had a row with. Frank hadn't learned how to do that really at Chelsea. He had a couple of big rows with, with a couple of big players in the dressing room and it, it ended up poisoning things. Maybe yeah. he's learned from that. And I noticed, for instance, that um, when he went to Chelsea, he was big on fines. He brought this massive fine system in. And I don't, I'm not saying it was necessarily very unpopular. I think the players went along with it. I did, didn't really hear anyone complaining about that towards the end. But he hasn't brought that with him to Everton. And it, I thought it was really interesting to hear him talk about players taking their own responsibility um, and him trying to guide them through rather than... It, it sounded like he wanted to be a bit more carrot than stick. And maybe, yeah. that, maybe that shows he's learned from what went wrong at Chelsea. I mean, he, <laughs> at Chelsea, he was fining people 20 grand for being late for, a, for training. And, and I think it was £500 a minute for, for every minute you missed of a team meeting, which sounds great, you know, on paper, doesn't it? Be strict disciplinarian like that. And, you know, it, it forces players to, to fall into line. But I thought it was interesting that he, he's not taking that approach to Everton and that maybe he's learnt that he, he fell out with too many people in the past and it didn't go well for him. So yeah. if he's learnt that there was, there's more than one side to the man management side of it, I think that, that could be a plus for him and for Everton as well. Well, I think right now where he's come into Everton and the state of the squad and, and, and their attitude, you know, when they've just had the ultimate stick, which was Benitez, you know, telling everyone from the, the caterer to the car park guy to the kit man that they could do it better and they just weren't good enough. You know, um, I think it's brilliant that he's put his arm around Kenny and Iwobi and picked them up and given them confidence because it's had an impact now, whether long-term Iwobi can perform at that level and whether long-term John Joe Kenny's going to get a new contract. Um, but in the short term, which is what he's talked about, the short term is the only thing that matters at Everton. We need points and we need to stay up this season. And in order to get the best from those players who've been you know, beaten to a pulp by Benitez, you need to cajole them along, then um, mm. good on him. It, see, he's got results against Leeds. See, just like Carlo, he's someone who's going to know everyone's name around the training ground and he's going to put smiles on faces and, and have personal conversations about your life with yep. people um I doubt that really happened on, under Rafa I, I think Rafa is such a sort of taskmaster um so demanding of everyone that um sometimes at his, his clubs it can get a bit the atmosphere can get a bit um what's the right way not not Toxic. stale but well, yeah. yeah, possibly, yeah. Maybe that's going a bit too far, but I don't think he's someone who inspires many smiles around the place, you know. And sometimes you need a, a happy camp with everyone pulling in the same direction rather than constantly being told off. Yeah, I think um, he was very authoritarian, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, and no, nobody's perfect. So all managers have different styles of, of management. Um, whether Franks is the right one for the players in, in the squad, we'll, we'll see. But I certainly think as I said before, that the, the younger players are in for some exciting times and, and they clearly seem engaged with it, inspired by him and happy that, that he's there. So I think those are all positive things. OK, let, let, let's, let's wrap up, guys, with um, two predictions. Where are we, we going to be in the league and how far in the FA Cup will we get? 
Um, oh, difficult. Um, I think I think they'll be all right. I think they'll they'll end the season. Oh, I, I struggle to make a prediction because I don't want, I really don't want it to go wrong. But <laughs> We're going to come back to you. I, on this I, point. I would guess. I, I would guess they end up with a, a fairly good cushion from the bottom because they haven't really been right down there in the bottom three yet. They have a bit of a cushion already and they have games in hand. So if he wins enough of his home games, which I would expect him to, I think they'll end up okay and and fairly clear, fairly safe. Okay. And the FA Cup, I suppose, with the greatest respect to Warren Wood, were um, one decent draw away from a semi-final. All depends on the draw, doesn't it, really? Six-round draw, yeah. In in a a one-off game totally capable of beating virtually anyone really in, in the cup. So you, you never know. Certainly think Frank will have a go at it. Um, and it shouldn't really affect the league form. So could be quite exciting as, yeah, Boreham Wood don't look like someone who should knock you out at home. Um, but all, all depends on the draw really and what happens elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Roger? Um, <clears throat> I don't think we'll go down. Um, and I think if you look at the table games in hand and other teams um, you know we're five points behind Leicester we're five points behind Villa with a game in hand play Southampton at the weekend if we beat them we'll be four points behind them with two games in hand I think we can finish 12th or or even possibly um, sneak into 10th because I think Leicester are, are, are on the uh, are on the way Palace draw too many games. Brentford will fall away. Leeds have got tough fixtures coming. I think Everton and Newcastle will pull away comfortably. And I think that, you know, Norwich and Watford will struggle to get 30 points and Burnley might get 32, 33. I think those three are cut adrift. Um, I think that we will, um, I think that we'll make it to a semi-final. And um, I wouldn't rule out going all the way because I think when you've got a winner, a real winner, and when the stars align, we might have finally found found the right guy. Um, and I think the draw is important. Of course it is. A home tie would be good. But given there are no replays and whatever, uh, everything is now sudden death. So I wouldn't fear going to the Etihad. I would probably fear going to Anfield because we all know how the script is written. But if we get one of those, City or, or Chelsea or um, uh, the Reds, um, bear in mind that the sixth round tie and even the semi-final could be interfering with Champions League games. And, you know, Pep loves to rest people. And, um, you know, we're not going to rest anyone. We're going to play our strongest team. Um, so, yeah, I'd be optimistic. And that's a very, very strange feeling. And anybody who's heard me on podcast must be thinking I've been on the booze. But it is only 10 <laughs> o'clock in the morning UK time. And I can confirm I haven't. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> oh, not yet. No, no. The day is, the day is young. Gents, thank you so much. Uh, really interesting insight, Paul. Thank you. And Roger, as always, um, very insightful from yourself as well. Um, Paul, in, in, the, in the fourth part of our series, who's the next Chelsea manager we're going to talk about? Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the next Chelsea manager comes to Everton. Yeah, well, they've, they've tried for Mourinho a couple of times, haven't they? I'm, I'm going to start calling Everton Little Chelsea if they keep appointing um, not just <laughs> managers, but backroom staff from Stamford Bridge. <laughs> Chelsea of the North, yeah. <laughs> All right, gents, thank, thank you so much. Really appreciated it. And I hope um, people who listen to this uh, enjoyed it. Thank you very much. <laughs>